The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. So the reading today is Matthew 5:27 through 30. Uh, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray about it before we get started. Father God, um, we do confess that we are not above your word. We sit under your word. Your word has authority over our lives, and we receive that. These are hard words, and we might be tempted to, to think, who, who is this talking to me? But it's, I hope that, God, you, you would impress upon people that it's, it's not me saying these things. It's your holy word. It's the words of Jesus preserved for us in scripture. So Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts, a work so that we would submit well to these words and that we would hear them with hope because they don't come isolated. They come in a manner that's surrounded in the rest of scripture with your promises that we're not left to ourselves to fix ourselves, but it's part of the work of salvation that you alone are doing in our lives. So give us soft hearts this morning to cooperate with that. Teach us how to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. So we're continuing today looking at Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount where he lays out the program for what it means to be a part of the kingdom that he's ushering in. And what we're finding is that this is all-encompassing, right? There, there is no part of our lives that isn't going to be, in some sense, turned upside down. This is going to touch every aspect of who we are and how we live in this world. And today we see that it changes even what we do with sexual desire, and so the main thought is that the people of Jesus give no safe harbor to lust. And I realize that this is a sensitive topic. I also realize that um, there are kids with us, maybe as young as, um, as sixth grade. And um, I'm okay with that. I, I hope you're okay with that too. Parents, when passages like this come around... Make sure that you take the opportunity to talk through it with your kids afterwards. Make sure that they are accurately understanding what the Bible has to say about these matters. Because if we treat human sexuality like a taboo topic, if we just kind of stay silent so that things don't get awkward, well then our kids will learn. They will form ideas about this somewhere. They'll just have learned that you're not so comfortable being a part of that conversation with them. And it probably also needs to be said that the Bible is not shy about discussing human sexuality. Even though today's passage is about keeping it within its proper boundaries, 
we definitely shouldn't interpret that as the Bible somehow discouraging appropriate sexual expression. God created us as sexual beings in the beginning, and the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed in the garden, and it was very good. Now, there's even a whole book of romance poetry in the Old Testament that at times is quite erotic. So the Bible is not embarrassed about or negative toward sexual desire or intimacy. But it is realistic about its power. Sex is like nuclear material. It can either be used to appropriately fuel a reactor that will give seemingly endless warmth and light, or it can be used inappropriately and then the devastation is unspeakable. And that devastation is what Jesus wants to protect us and protect those around us from if we let sexual desire infect the way that we see and interact with people who aren't meant for us in that way. And so verse 27 starts out, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, similar to last week's section, where Jesus commented on the command not to murder, here also we need to be very careful to see that Jesus is not in any way adding to or changing the Old Testament law. What he's doing is confronting misinterpretations, and he's getting after the true heart of the law, because it's actually not that hard to not engage in the physical act of adultery. I mean, if you put your mind to it, it's not that hard. So for many in Jesus' day and many in our day, that's where we want to stop with this law. Just don't cross that blatant line. Essentially, don't steal someone else's spouse, and then you're just just doing fine, right? That's all we need to be concerned about. But just like the seed for murder is anger, we looked at that last week, so also this verse shows us that the seed for adultery is sown through indulging lustful thoughts. And this is going to be the theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that we are called to true purity of heart. We're not just called to kind of restrain our outward actions. It needs to go deep. It needs to go all the way into our hearts. And so lust doesn't just become wrong and harmful when it crosses that final line into adultery. Any active desiring after someone who is not your spouse, it is adultery. In your mind, you've already done the deed. That's how serious it is. Now, admittedly, there's a gray area when you're on the path to marriage with someone and it's natural to experience certain desires, though not yet to act on them. That's why Christians don't typically have like two-year-long engagements so that we can arrange for the absolutely perfect wedding. No, because we are not cohabitating. We're not playing at being one flesh before we actually are one flesh by covenant. Because once the the seed of those passions is starting to sprout, then it's time to plant it in the soil of marriage so that it can fulfill its purpose. And that's why the, the lovesick female in the Song of Solomon says, I warn you, friends, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. It's nuclear material, she says. Handle it with care. Now, let me stop here and um, just close a couple of possible loopholes. First, ladies, you might be inclined to think like, well, this is talking about a man looking at a woman with lustful intent. 
So I guess I'm off the hook, right? I, I can just kind of check out for this sermon. Not so. Remember that Jesus is most immediately here teaching his disciples who were men. You can see that back in chapter 5, verse 1. So, of course, he's talking to them like men, but it's also a teaching that was meant to be overheard by the crowds and to be spread to others. So it is true, let's admit, it is true that lust, living in lustful thoughts may come more naturally to men than to women, but it's certainly not exclusively so, right? Everyone's different. And we'll talk about that later. But this is, this is not just a male problem. It's for all of us. Also, we might be inclined to think like, well, adultery. Adultery has to do with lusting after a married person. That's in the very definition of adultery. Someone's marriage is being affected by this. So if I'm single and I'm lusting after a single person, well, no harm done, right? Wrong. Keep in mind that for the original audience, I mean... Everyone was married, pretty much. It was expected in that culture. It, it often came even when they were teenagers. And then if someone was widowed, remarriage would happen very, very quickly. So there's a sense in which this wasn't just, that there, there wasn't opportunity for fornication that wasn't also adultery to some extent. Adultery is being used as a, a sort of shorthand for all sexual sin. And the Bible, in other places, considers this really one and the same. For example, Job 31, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above? So don't think that this is just about not violating people's marriages, though it's certainly not less than that. It's also about not violating the possible future marriages of people who are currently single. Now let's ask, what does this mean, look at someone with lustful intent? I won't get into the mechanics of it, but the Greek can have two different nuances here. It could mean to look on someone with strong desire, usually sexual in nature, or it could mean to look on someone in order to stir up that desire. And because of the ambiguity there, we're, we're going to need to think about both possibilities. And as we do that, I think you'll see that they're related and that in many ways they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So first, the meaning that seems more obvious, to basically get an emotional rise by fixating on the sexual desirability of someone else. We live in an insanely sensory culture. And there are always sights to take in everywhere. And kids learn very early how to check each other out. And, and we never really outgrow that, right? And we, we talk about it in, in locker rooms, in cars, at girls' nights, or on a work trip. It's not uncommon to hear people talking about how hot someone is. We size them up with our eyes, and then we form an opinion about desirability. And when you think about it like that, like we can see, just like we did last week with anger, that lust is a force that dehumanizes the people around us. It makes their identity all about our potential enjoyment. It turns humans into objects. Now, it may be easy enough to realize that we don't want to treat the people in our lives that way. But what about strangers on the street, right? What's the harm there? They'll never know how I looked at them as they passed by. Well, don't be so sure. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of observant people out there who have a, like a radar for subtle ways in which others are glancing at them. But even if they didn't notice, there's still plenty of harm 
If you're married or you're engaged, then you're, with your eyes, you are cheating on the person to whom you're committed. Well, they'll never know either, you may say. Really? Do, do you think that lusting after others doesn't leave a mark on the way that you interact with your spouse? It definitely, definitely affects your level of contentment, the amount of satisfaction you take in them. Because you, you've basically taken a piece of of devotion, devotion of your vision, of your imagination, and that you owe only to your spouse, and then you've given that away to someone else. So checking out strangers, whether on the street or on a screen or a billboard or magazine, looking lustfully at strangers, even if you're not yet married, it also decreases your capacity for pure thoughts, for contentment in your current circumstances. And it sets you on a trajectory where you're much more likely to gaze with lust at the people who are in your life that you really do know. You know, I've known a number of guys with serious porn problems who honestly couldn't look an attractive woman in the eyes. Because habitually going there, even with impersonal images, can in some cases make all interaction with the opposite sex harder. Because the way that you've learned to think about them when no one is watching, it's never far from the surface. But the number one reason why you're not to gaze with lust at someone who's not your spouse is because the one who made you and the one who made them said so. He has a good design. And when we stay inside that good design, we thrive. But when we think that we are wiser than God... We hurt ourselves and others. You are not your own. That person that you're lusting after belongs to him also. So don't use, don't misuse people who are created in God's image. Proverbs 5 says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So a right fear of God should sober us, and it should warn us against ever compromising the sexual integrity of another human being, even with our eyes. And here we should pause and think a bit more about pornography. You know, our culture, our culture thinks that porn use is both normal and humorous. You don't have to look hard to find on TV or in movies like jokes about someone's porn habits. And if we're not careful, that sort of cultural viewpoint can affect us and, and we'll stop seeing the harm to others or the danger to our own souls. Ray Ortland has written a book that I'd highly recommend. It's called The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility. Now, Ortland addresses men in this, but um, we, like I said, we shouldn't ignore the fact that porn use is on the increase among females too. So the quote that I'm about to read, you can just as easily flip it around, you can speak about it either gender. Portland writes, that girl, that woman, the one on the porn site, she isn't just pixels on a screen, she's real. Somewhere right now, she's out there trying to get by. I'll bet you any amount of money she didn't volunteer for porn. She was degraded and abused into it. And that precious woman has hopes and feelings and longings and sorrows just like you. She's as human as you are, as worthy as you are, as royal as you are. I want you to stop abusing her and start defending her. You're doing one or the other. Porn is Satan recruiting us to degrade a woman 
into the opposite of who she is, from royalty to slavery. Porn is a man saying to that woman on the screen, I don't care about you. I don't care about your personal story. I don't care about what will happen to you when the filming is over, how you'll drag yourself back to your apartment and get drunk just to stop feeling the pain. I don't care about what you'll be facing tomorrow, which will be yet another day of this torment. I don't want to know what you're suffering. I don't even want to know your name. You don't matter. All that matters here is me. So what he's emphasizing is that the porn industry ruins the lives of actual people. They may give the impression that they love what they do and they, and they chose it freely, but if you catch up with them in 15 or 20 years, the, the story will be told very differently. And most of them if you were in a position to have an honest conversation with them, even now they would freely admit that they're not in any way living the dream, they're living the nightmare. But they have to keep doing it because this is the only way they know how to make money, and often their view of self is so poor that they'd be terrified to try anything else. So do you really want to be complicit in their sexual exploitation? Again, porn may be somewhat more of a male problem as men tend to be more highly visually stimulated. Not necessarily, but in many cases. But I also want to mention that it's possible to fantasize in an adulterous way, even if the images aren't sexual at all, right? That's kind of what the whole rom-com genre and Hallmark Channel are all about. I'm not saying you can't watch those if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> Just pay attention to why they interest you and what your heart is doing there. Are you escaping into what seems like a better reality? And does that include fantasizing about the relationship? If so, be careful. Okay, so I shouldn't gaze at another person in a way that gets an emotional stimulus out of the viewing, not on screens, not in person, not even with strangers, but how do I know when I'm starting to go there? I mean, beautiful people are everywhere. It's no crime to appreciate God's handiwork, right? Right, it's true. And the more pure our hearts are, the more we will be able to see and interact with beautiful people without acting weird, right? There's no need to be Amish here. No need to jump to the other side of the sidewalk when someone's dressed attractively walking down toward you, right? The question is what happens in that split second after you realize Oh, this is a physically beautiful person. Can you kind of wrap it up there and have the same sort of appreciation that you would when you're looking at a beautiful painting or when you're looking at beautiful scenery as you drive by? Or do you keep gazing, which is likely to turn into fixating and imagining? Well, now let's shift over and consider another possible implication of looking at someone with lustful intent, where it could mean in order to stir up desire in them. Now, at this point, many pastors have used the opportunity to encourage their people to dress modestly. And that is a valid application, but I want to be careful about how you hear that from me. I am not in any way saying that if someone is lusting, well, the real problem is just the other person, you know, dressing or carrying themselves in an inviting way. No, that's not what I'm saying. Everyone is responsible for the motives of their own hearts. But if we're talking about lust as the same essential thing as adultery, let's ask, why do people commit adultery? Most of the time it is lust, 
but not always. Often, at least for one of the parties, it's actually about money, or it's about power, or it's about status, etc. Yes, there's a strong desire, but not necessarily for what the person offers sexually. It could be for what they provide, even unknowingly, in exchange for the arousal that you give them. And so then this translates into the question, why do we dress the way we dress? Why do we talk and carry ourselves in certain ways that are deemed flirtatious and attractive? Why do we wear that much perfume or cologne or do our hair so meticulously in that hot way? Are we subtly trying to stir up desire in others so that they will give us deference or advancement or, or those opportunities that we crave? If so, then this passage says that we're causing people to commit adultery in their hearts. And this isn't just something that women have to think about with cleavage showing or short skirts. It could just as easily apply to some guy in a service industry job who wears muscle shirts and is extra touchy so that he can get big tips from middle-aged women. Just being real here. Now, again, we're not laying down specific rules, okay? You don't have to dress frumpy so as not to excite anyone on the street. It's not wrong to dress to impress, especially for special occasions. But even then, we all know that that can be done in a classy way instead of a trashy way, right? And obviously, fashions change over time. Some styles that would be deemed scandalous in the past don't necessarily stir up lust in us today. And also, some styles that might be acceptable in other cultures maybe very much would stir up lust in us. So the question of modesty is somewhat contextual, and it's somewhat person by person, but there are good questions we should be asking ourselves. Questions like, why do I want to look like this? Why do I want to carry myself in this way? Would it be easy for people to get the wrong ideas about my motives or my goals? And is the attention of people more important to me than the approval of God? And if you're honestly asking questions like that, then your heart is probably in a good place. But to live like this, not indulging in lust, not trying to provoke lust, it's a very countercultural way to live, no doubt about it. And very probably it takes a lot of not only learning new habits, but unlearning the destructive ways in which we've been accustomed to living. But the thing is that that lust, it's, it's powerful, right? It's even addictive. It's an addictive way to live. And so even if we want to change, it can feel impossible. What then should we do? Verse 29 tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. These verses emphasize that sexual purity may be costly, but it's worth it. Sexual purity may be costly, but it's worth it. Now, the actions described here, they, they sound pretty severe, like basically hurt yourself so that you don't go to hell. Mm. 
There are mixed reports, but it's possible that a certain church father in the third century actually castrated himself in an attempt to live out this passage. Please don't do that. There is a level of hyperbole in these words. So I just want to be clear about that. Jesus is not here promoting the harming of one's own body. In Ephesians 5, it's, it's a different conversation, but just as a side note, it says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And there's a sense then that that's how it should be. And also, like literally plucking out your eye, literally cutting off your hand, that's not going to get to the heart of the matter, right? That's just damage control. That's just preventing an opportunity for consuming a sight or doing a deed. But like, where does it stop, right? What if I pluck out my eye, cut off my hand, and then, and then I'm really attracted to the sound of a woman's voice, and then it, it creates sensual thoughts in me. Like, do I need to make myself deaf also? Where does it stop? No, of course not. Okay, but then what is Jesus saying? Because clearly he is making a very strong statement that's meant to prompt us to urgent action, and we dare not just skip over whatever it is he is saying. Because we can't, we, we're tempted to do that. One scholar has said that, that the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising, and so render it harmless. In other words, there's a history of Christians giving lip service to the goodness of this sermon, and then instead of taking it seriously and obeying it, we just explain away all the parts that actually require hard change in our lives. So let's not do that. Don't castrate yourself, and also don't explain this away and think that verses 29 to 30 don't require any difficult sacrifice from you, because they do, and it's not optional. Jesus says that his people aren't marked by lust. It has to end. If preserving that, that feeling of power or pleasure that you get from indulging lust or exciting lust in others, if preserving that lifestyle is more important to you than, than adjusting to life in his kingdom, well then fine, you will be excluded from his kingdom in the end. But if we really knew the fire with which we're playing, then we would be much more willing to cut out even seemingly precious things from our lives in order to protect ourselves from going down that road. So the question is then, what kind of difficult sacrifice are these verses calling for? What kind of sacrifice could feel painful, like losing a very natural part of yourself? What kind of sacrifice does away with the way that you naturally use your eyes or naturally move and act in this world? Because these statements eliminate any ability for us to say, like, well, surely God wouldn't expect me to rearrange my life that drastically. After all, I'd be a freak. I'd, I'd be inconvenienced. Changes like that will hurt. Yeah. Yeah, they will. And it may seem unnatural. In order to protect yourself from participating in lust, you may miss out on fun. You may make people annoyed by you. You may lose friends who just can't accept your inability to do certain things, go certain places, or even have certain types of conversations. You could lose money. After all, sex sells. You could lose a job, depending on your industry, if you refuse to compromise in certain ways. Maybe you need to change teams or change departments. If there's someone in your workplace that is a problem for you, Maybe you need to flee from persistent temptation. Maybe this means that you need to learn new habits 
to make sure you're looking at people the right way, seeing them as people and not as objects. So, you know, maybe if there's a problem billboard or a problem storefront, you need to change your path to work each day. Maybe you need to end your streaming services. Maybe you need to talk with your spouse about what's helpful or not for you to watch. Maybe you need to mute commercials and don't look at them, even if you miss the first few seconds of the game when it comes back on. Maybe you need to turn away at the first glimmer of the Cowboys or Lakers cheerleaders. Maybe, if necessary, you actually die the death of not having a computer in your home. Check your email somewhere else. Maybe, to say no to porn, you don't even have a smartphone. Did you know you can still get a flip phone? Just calls, simple texting. Because high stakes call for drastic measures. And Jesus is telling us to not allow lust even a foothold with which to ruin our souls. So we don't take these dramatic and painful actions because the actions themselves will somehow earn our purity. No, we take them because our hearts are becoming pure and we have decided to be done with this sin. So be honest with God, be honest with yourself about your sexual sin, be sickened by the patterns of lust, and then turn that into prayer for purity. Because blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? You might have to stop looking at some other things. Now let me offer a story that might help all of this to click into place. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, tells a fanciful parable sort of story about a bus full of dead people who end up in the foothills of heaven, and they have a chance to see if they really like it there or if they want to choose the alternative. Now, of course, we know that's not how it works, but it's just a story, and it's meant to help us to think about our lives right now. So to tell this, I'm going to have to play the narrator and three parts. Bear with me. In one of the scenes, there's a man with a little red lizard on his shoulder. And it's twitching its tail like a whip, and it's whispering things in his ear. And the man, you know, there by the foothills to heaven, he turns and snarls, Shut up, I tell you! The lizard wags its tail and continues to whisper to him. And then eventually the man stopped being angry, and he began to smile. And then he turned, and he started to limp away, from the foothills of heaven. Off so soon, asked a voice. It belonged to a bright and powerful angel. Yes, I'm off, said the man. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I, I told this little chap, pointing at the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which, of course, he insisted on doing. And, of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but, but he won't stop, so I'll just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. Of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, you'll burn me. Keep away, said the man, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, 
That's a further question. I, I'm quite open to considering it, but I mean, for the moment, I, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's a, the necessity of that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Oh, don't you think so? Well, uh, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. Uh, in fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling very well today, so it would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help, why didn't you kill the thing before asking me, before I knew? Like, it would be all over now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Do I have your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the man, saying, Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be sort of a ghost, not a real man, as you are now. He doesn't understand. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I, I know there are, there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be good. I admit sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the man. I know killing it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then, then may I? Fine, go on, can't you? Get it over with. Do what you like. And then the man was whimpering. God, help me. God, help me. The next moment, the man gave a scream of agony, and the burning one closed his grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then he flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. Ah, I'm done for, gasped the man, reeling backwards. But then the man began to change. He became larger. He was at peace. He was more solid than before. He even looked golden and majestic. And at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, it would seem to be dying, but then it transformed into a great stallion, silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with muscle, whinnying and stamping its hoofs. And as the story goes on, the remade man hops onto that stallion and rides triumphantly into the mountains of the kingdom of heaven. I hope that that imagined scene stays with you because we are all too inclined to make excuses for the little red lizards on our shoulders, especially in the arena of lust. We think, you know, what harm will it do? A little wandering of the eyes, a little fantasizing, a little flirting, a little using my sexuality to get ahead, a little enjoyment of those images or entertainment. There are so many 
excuses that we tell ourselves. We say, well, it, it lets off steam. It's, it's fairly innocent. It's just part of being a person in this world. But the reality of the matter is that people in the kingdom of Christ aren't to use people in that way. And so if you want to be part of the good and lasting realm, you can't bring that with you. It will have to die. You will have to kill sexual sin in your life. But the good news is twofold. First, you can't and you don't need to do it alone. As you trust in Christ, it's by the Holy Spirit that the corrupted parts of our nature are put to death. Ray Ortland put it this way. Never once has a stop off at that fantasy land made my life better. And never once has Jesus refused to take me back and clean me up. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. But you must choose to not gratify sinful desires. You must agree to put these tendencies to death. But as you do that, behind you and alongside that effort, it's our good God who is working and who is willing his good pleasure. And in, just like in this story, it's the power of God alone that can squeeze the life out of that habitual lust. So will you ask him to? Will you give up simply trying to preserve a, a tamed version of how you had been living? Trust in Christ. Welcome his victory over the power of sin in your life. And secondly, the good news is that whatever loss you feel like you're going through in this process of putting this sin to death, nothing is lost. Actually, everything is gained in the end. Jesus promises that whoever loses his life, could be actual physical life or the various possessions and pleasures that make up the life we've known, whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. Like the man in the story with lust and sexual sin squeezed to death in your life. After the initial discomfort, you will rise. And this victory will become something that will transport you to new vistas of joy and purpose. You'll ride off into glory as a champion. And that will be just the start of your adventures. So Jesus is calling you today to decide how this struggle is going to end. He's calling you to do away with complacency and apathy and excuses and selfishness. He's calling you to proverbially pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, whatever is necessary to deny any safe harbor to lust. So will today be the final day in that struggle for you? By his grace, I believe that it can be. Lord, we know we can't do this alone. We know that it is you who must strangle out lust in our life. So we open ourselves. We want to be a people who confess our sins to others, who ask for help, who look to you. We know that your grace is not just for the moment of our conversion. Your, your, your power is not just to free us from from the guilt of sin. No, you also free us from the grip of sin. And so we praise you for that, that victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we ask for further application by your spirit of the sanctification that's already won for us at the cross of Christ. Lord, uh, minister to us now as we celebrate that cross together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.